open your Bibles this morning to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. We're going to be back in the book of Joshua and looking into chapter 2 this morning. Um, And I am so excited for this series as we are in week two of our four-week series uh, looking at the person of Joshua, his life, but also the book of Joshua. And so we are excited for this morning. Uh, If you're having a hard time finding it, so you go through the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, then you're going to find Joshua and then Judges. And so right before Judges is the book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua is a historical book in the scriptures. It's considered a historical narrative. And all that means is it's a book that records the history of the people of Israel, but in a narrative form. It's telling us a story, but it's a historically accurate recording of what happened in the life of the Israelites as they are preparing to go into the promised land. And so as you read the first five books of the Bible, you discover that uh, from creation all the way through that the children of Israel had a hard time with obedience, that they were in Egypt, they were brought out of Egypt under Moses and what we call the Exodus. Through that, they were led to receive the commandments. They completely missed the whole point, created an idol, worshipped an idol. God brought judgment, and they were spent wandering for 40 years. And now we've come to the promised land. We've come to the brink of them entering into this land that is flowing with milk and honey, this beautiful land that God is faithfully providing to them. And he promised it all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. We see God promising Abraham what we call the Abrahamic covenant, where he's promising and making a covenant with Abraham. And so here we are in the book of Joshua, and Joshua's preparing to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And there's some very familiar stories in the book of Joshua. Uh, Next week, uh, obviously, we're going to be talking about the battle of Jericho. And kind of what takes place there. I've got a little surprise for you guys next week. So hold on for that. But it's going to be really exciting. You, I'm not, you just you got to wait. But it's really going to be worth the wait. So, uh, But this morning, we're going to find ourselves in Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua chapter 2. Now, last week, just a quick review. And if you missed last week's message, we encourage you to go online. You can go on our website, northgoodland.org. You can go on the app at uh, North Goodland BC in your app store. And you can find uh, all the sermon series, all the messages there. And so we encourage you to go back and, and watch that first uh, message in Joshua. We encourage you to do so. But basically last week what we looked at was that Joshua was a faithful and consistent leader, a faithful and consistent leader. Now, let me just pause there. We said this last week, but it bears repeating. Being faithful and consistent in our leadership does not mean we're perfect. Okay, so many people strive for perfection. You're never going to reach perfection. That's why there's a thing called grace. Amen. See, we as followers of Christ, we reached a point where we realized that in our sin, we were broken and undone and needed forgiveness of our sins. We cried out to Christ. We cried out to him and we said, Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose again. I, I ask that you would save me from my sins. I repent. I turn from my sins and I trust in you. And at that moment, You became a child of God, a son or daughter of God, saved, eternally secure. Never will you lose your salvation because you don't hold on to your salvation. He holds on to your salvation. And he gave us his Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 says, as a sealing of that salvation. You will never lose your salvation. You are secure in the hands of Christ once you trust Christ as your savior. So as we live in this Christian life, we strive to be consistent and faithful in how we lead our families 
our communities, our jobs, are at our jobs. And I know last week we talked about that. And you might be sitting there thinking, like, that's great, preacher. But I can tell you right now, I'm not able to be used by God to lead anyone to do anything. It's just, I just can't be used of God. We're going to unpack that this morning. And I pray that by the time we're done, and prayerfully even before that, you would realize that that's a lie that you've been fed or that you've been told by your flesh or others that it's completely untrue to Scripture. You are able to lead in Christ. Because see, Joshua's key to leadership was not his ability. It was not his human intellect or his own wisdom or his own talents. The reason that Joshua was faithful and consistent as a leader, the reason he was strong as a leader, a great military man, a great military mind, the reason he was able to lead in this way we discovered last week was in chapter one. You see, his faithful leadership came from devoting himself to meditating or dwelling on the word of God continually And having confidence to lead because God promised him he would be with him and not forsake him. You see the key to strong and consistent leadership, not perfect. Again, let me just say that again. We all stumble at times, even as followers of Christ. But as we desire to be faithful, consistent leaders for Christ in our homes, again, stay-at-home moms, you're leading In your job, no matter what your position you're leading, as an owner of a business, you're leading. Whether you're a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, it doesn't matter. You're leading for Christ wherever God has placed you. And if you want to lead faithfully and consistently, it needs to come from devoting ourselves to spending time in God's word. The Bible says that we meditate on the word of God. Now, we're not talking like meditate like, oh, he, you know, that whole thing, okay? We're not doing that, okay? I guess you can if you want, whatever, I don't judge. But that's not what we're talking about, okay? We're talking about this idea of dwelling in God's word. The word meditate in the original language just actually means mumbling or speaking to yourself. So the next time you're doing that and someone criticizes you, just be like, hey, I'm talking the Bible to myself. Leave me alone. I'm okay. Don't judge me, okay? Now, some of you talk to yourself about other things. We won't get into that, but that's fine. But this dwelling on God's word, I'm just speaking God's word to myself. And then realizing, you know what? No matter where I go in life, he is with me. And he will not forsake me. See, that led to Joshua having confidence to lead and to faithfully trust in Christ by putting the word of God into action. Again, we too have that promise given to us in Christ that he will never leave you or forsake you. That we can have strong and courageous faith, which is the title of our series over the next couple of weeks. Because God is with us. So I have to ask. How did we, don't ask out, answer out loud, but how did you lead this week? Uh, We talked about this last week. So this last week, how did you lead this week? How did you take up that calling to, to see God use you as a leader in your area of influence? How did you display your faith to those around you? Did you spend time in his word this week? And if not, why not? What was it that kept you from being in his word consistently this week? And I don't say any of this so that you feel bad or feel guilty or shamed. I say all of this because I want us to do some evaluation so we can grow as followers of Christ. See, we don't do these things. I don't spend time in his word. I don't pray. I don't attend church. I don't give an offering. I don't serve in ministries so that God will be happy with me and keep me saved. No, 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 no. Because he's saved me, because he's rescued me from the depths of hell and sin and death, I can only surround myself with his word and say, I just want to serve you. 
It's just the natural outpouring of what he's already done. I don't serve him. We don't serve him to keep our salvation. We serve him because he saved us in spite of our serving of him. That's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Why? Why is it I cannot earn my way to salvation? Because I can't boast when I stand before him one day. I can't stand before the throne of God and say, man, look at how good I did. Look at how I got myself here. And people think this. People will use this to try to guilt people into serving. And they'll say things like this. Well, don't you want to get to heaven? And I always love when people start questions like that. Don't you want to, when you get to heaven, look, I'm just happy I'm getting there. Okay. Can we just be, because I, I, on my own, I don't deserve it. Okay. So if you just say you're getting to heaven, I'm good. Right. Like, I'm okay with that. But people say, well, when you get to heaven, do you really want to stand before God and you see so-and-so, brother so-and-so, or sister so-and-so being rewarded for all their good works, and you only get one crown, and they got 20 crowns, and won't you feel really, really bad about that? So shouldn't you work really hard? Man, there's only one problem with that. It's not in the book. It's not in the Word. Nowhere are our rewards in heaven, what we receive for the things we do in Christ, compared to other believers and what they did for Christ. It's only an individual opportunity to stand before God, stand before his throne. Believe it or not, the things you do for Christ will be rewarded. But you know what we're going to do with those rewards, I believe? I believe we're going to cast them back at his feet and say, no, no, this was all to your glory and your praise. It is only the glory of God. It is all to the glory of God. This doesn't mean we can't pat someone on the back for doing something, say, good job. We appreciate that. That's always good to hear that. But it's not me doing this. It's not you doing these things. So how is it we can have strong and courageous faith, even in today's day and age, in a world that seemingly every day gets a little bit crazier? I mean, just the world around us is drifting so far from the things of God. And so do we stand outside and holler and yell at all those that are drifting, or do we get in the word? Obey his word, fall on our knees before him and seek him, knowing that he's with us and then take his gospel to those that are in need who are just as in need as we are and were of the gospel at one time in our lives. Again, so many people think I could never do that. I could never lead the way Joshua led. Well, then you're looking at your limitations, not God's ability to use anyone to do anything according to his will. I want to look at Uh, really a perfect example of this in the book of Joshua to help us understand and realize that God uses the unexpected to accomplish his will. That God uses the unexpected to accomplish his will. Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we're going to read quite a few verses. And I know we usually read shorter passages, but I wanted to give the whole story so we can really understand what's going on here in the context of Joshua 2. So Joshua 2, chapter 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, which is always funny to say out loud. It's like, well, how did he get there if he was the son of Nun? These are the jokes. They don't get better. It's just the material you're stuck with, all right? Got more laughs than I thought it would, though. That's okay. Greg's shaking his head right now in the sound booth, I believe. He's just like, oh, come on. All right. Joshua 2 and verse 1 again. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, even Jericho. So we're getting ready to to go into Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, behold, there came men in hither to night of the children of Israel to search out the country. 
And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. Yeah, they came, but I don't know where they went. They came to me, but I don't know where they are now. Verse 5, And it came to pass about the time of shutting the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out, Whither the men went, I want not. Pursue after them quickly, for you shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords. And as soon as they, were, they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them on the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Man, what an amazing God we serve. Amen. And what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. And that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have. Deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our life for yours, if, we utter not, if you utter not this our business, and it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Look at the wording there in verse 14. I'm not going to stay on this too long, but look at the wording. What do the spies believe already before it ever happens? The Lord's going to give us the land. So when that happens, this is what will take place. I love that. Verse 15. Then she let them down by a cord through the window of her house, was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest your pursuers meet you, and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned, and afterward may you go your way. And the men said unto her, We will be blameless of this time, or this thine oath, which thou hast made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, which thou didst let us down by. And thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thine house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if any hand be upon him. And if thou utter this our business, then we will be uh, quit of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. And she said, according unto your words, so be it. She sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. Let's pray. Father, we know, Lord, that we've already come before you in prayer and in worship and in offering. And, Lord, all of it is an act of worship. All of it is meant to show and to display our faith, our deep faith in you, that we trust you in all things. We sing praise to you because you are worthy. We give unto you because we believe that what you're doing in this world is worth supporting and worth being a part of. We sit and we listen to your word because we believe it is the word of truth. And we need it this morning. Lord, no one here needs my opinion. No one listening online needs my ideas or 
or my thoughts on these things, but we need desperately your word. We need the word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so we pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts, that we would not just have emotional response to the word of God, but we would have an intellectual response to the word of God and realize these truths to be true. Whether they fit with us in our understanding or not, Lord, I pray that we would conform our thoughts and our thinking to your word, that it would be our teacher and our guide this morning. We thank you for all that you have done. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your way you guide and lead us in understanding your word and directing us to the things of Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would honor you and glorify you in all that is said and done this morning. And if there is anyone, as Pastor Greg prayed, that doesn't know you as our Lord and personal Savior, I pray that they would come to know you this morning, receiving your gift of salvation, not by works that they have done, but by your grace, which is offered freely to any who would call upon the name of the Lord. Thank you, Father, for your salvation. And thank you, Lord, for holding on to us when we desire to walk away. You keep us and you hold us close. Father, I pray for the one here this morning or maybe more that feel unusable, feel like there's something that they've done or something in their past that makes them incapable of being used by you for your glory. I pray that they would know that their value remains, that you see them with eyes of love, eyes of grace. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that needs to repent or turn from something, Lord, you would respond and give them grace and mercy as we know you will based on your word. Father, again, thank you for this example we get to read this morning and how you are so amazing to use and to work even in situations and individuals that we would never expect. And again, for your glory, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very familiar story. It's kind of one of those what I call flannel graph stories. What does that mean? That means if you ever grew up in church, if you sat through Sunday school or junior church a lot, you probably saw this depicted in flannel graph in some way or another. And so it's a very familiar story that a lot of us have heard bits and pieces of, or maybe most of. Maybe for you, it's not a familiar story. Maybe this is one of the first times you're hearing this story. In whatever case, we want to ask that you would just open your hearts and minds to what God has for you this morning. Again, it's a familiar story, but one that we cannot skip in our study, our brief study of the book of Joshua. Again, a summary idea here, as I already kind of alluded to, Joshua's on the brink of going into the promised land, and he's going to send out some spies to spy out Jericho, to check out their defenses, to see what's going on. Now, notice the first time that spies were sent out, back in Numbers, we talked about this last week, there were 12 spies, 10 of which said, there's no way we can overtake the land. There's no way. It's impossible. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, we can do this. God's going to do this. Let's go. Notice this time, Joshua, in his wisdom, said, we're not sending out 12 spies, we're sending out two spies. Because you ever know this, when you get 12 people together and you ask them a question, you get 37 opinions, right? You'll get all kinds of different ideas. So Joshua's like, we're going to eliminate that whole thing, two spies, not 12, two, okay? So he sends out two spies, and they get to the city, and they begin to evaluate what's going on there. And they find themselves in the home of Rahab. Now, again, we need to note that we're going to talk next week about Jericho and what happens there in the infamous battle of Jericho. It wasn't much of a battle, as we're going to understand. But before we get to that, I want to unpack chapter 2. As they get into the city, the king discovers, the king of Jericho discovers, which was just a city, an area. But in Canaan at this time, all the regions, all the cities had kings, which were really just leaders of those cities, of those areas. Okay, So this isn't the king of Canaan. This is just the king of one of the cities of Canaan. And so here they are, the king finds out and he sends out his soldiers to search out these spies, find them and kill them because he knows why they've come. They've come 
because they want to seek out, search out the land and find some dirt on them so they can overthrow them. And so they find themselves at the house of Rahab and Rahab decides to hide them and conceal their location, putting her own life at risk for them. So two questions we're going to look at this morning. I want to ask two basic questions. Who was Rahab and who did Rahab become? So who was Rahab and who did Rahab become? So the answer to the first question, who was Rahab? Well, we see here in the opening verses that we find out here in uh, verse 1 that they went and came into a harlot's house, house named Rahab and lodged there. So the basic translation of harlot, many of you know this, and some of your translations may translate it this way, is prostitute. So Rahab was a prostitute. Now, again, in some cases, people have tried to translate the word harlot in the original Hebrew as innkeeper, as one who just keeps an inn and has guests that come. Now, the reason for this is not really known. I don't know why some translations or some have tried to seek to change the translation on this. Uh, but the desire is to remove any notion, I believe, that a prostitute could be key, key in the plan or the will of God. That there's no way God could possibly do that, so we need to remove this and change the translation so that it fits better with what we believe God can do and how God moves. Now, the truth is this. God uses anyone who repents of their sins and trusts in him. And I'm so thankful that God uses people like Rahab and Moses the murderer and David who committed adultery. Now, these things are not condoned in Scripture. No sin is condoned in Scripture. But I'm so thankful when these individuals repented of their sin and trusted in God, in the Old Testament case, or in our case, trusted in Christ, that God does not hold their sin against them. He forgives them and restores them and redeems them and then plants them on the solid rock of Jesus Christ leading them and guiding them by the working of his Holy Spirit and the word of God, that we might keep our eyes on him and not fall into sin any longer. John says this, right? John chapter two, my children, sin not. Great, great encouragement. As a follower of Christ, which this was written, John two was written to, or first John two was written to believers, to Christians. And he tells the church, would you sin not? That's our striving goal. We, de we desire as followers of Christ to live in a way that honors our Savior, that honors our God. But the very next part of that verse is so key. If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know what that means? We strive every day by the power of God, by the working of his Spirit to sin not. But if any of us as followers of Christ fall into a sinful decision, which by the way, we usually don't fall into it, we plan it. We don't really fall into sin for the most part. Now, there's times you're driving down the road and something crosses your line of sight. You weren't looking for that. That stuff happens. What do we do? We capture that thought, we repent of that, and we turn away. The problem is that when we drive down that road the next time and we know it's there and then we look for it, now we've crossed the line. Most people don't plan to sin. They, or most people don't jump into sin or fall into sin randomly. They plan to sin. They little things that we do over time that allows our guard to come down and then we make a sinful decision. But here's the beauty of this. Do we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But as a follower of Christ, if I sin, I have a defense. I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And I can repent and turn back to him and he will restore me. I don't lose my salvation. He holds my salvation. He restores me and renews that right thinking in me. And so here we see this woman who, again, some have tried to change the translation of harlot to mean innkeeper. However, 
in the original Hebrew and in the New Testament when Rahab is mentioned in the Greek, the word literally translates to immoral woman. There's no way you can translate it any other way. An immoral woman. So a question arises, why would men of God go to the home of a harlot? Why would these men who are doing what God has called them to do and trying to do it the right way go to the home of a harlot? Well, there's two ideas on this. One, her home was on the wall of the city, so therefore it was close. Easy to get in and easy to escape if they needed to. The other idea, would this would have been a great place for information about the city. If you want to know what's going on in the city, this is a great location to get kind of dirt on those in the city. What's going on? Who's in charge? What's the rotation of the guards? They're going to know all of that because of what goes on in this home. I also have to note this. I believe scripture connecting this immoral title to Rahab is not intended to degrade her. It's not intended to shame her. But I believe it's meant as a reminder for us of what and who she was before God rescued her and turned her whole life around. I think we need to remind ourselves who we were sometimes before we knew Christ, where we were heading before we knew Christ, and then we can glorify God even more when we realize how much God rescued and changed our lives. We realize that no matter who someone is or how far they've gone, they are not beyond the reach of grace. If there is breath in their lungs, they are not beyond the reach of grace. And I believe we as followers of Christ who have received that grace, we need to believe this. Because I think we see people every single day that we write off. That we think could never be saved, could never be used of God. And we forget, not that long ago, we were those people. We didn't know Christ. But isn't it amazing how when we're saved for a little period of time, how quickly we can forget how much grace affected us. How much we desperately needed grace. You see, it's not so much that we receive Christ, it's that Christ receives us. And I love what John MacArthur says. He says it so well regarding salvation. He says this, The great miracle of redemption is not that we accept Christ, but that he accepts us. You see, we have nothing to offer in salvation, but the sin that needs to be forgiven. You have been accepted by God through his grace, and he is able to use any who cry out to him. So we notice that we ask, who was she? Well, she was a prostitute. But also, she was aware of the power of God. Verses 9 through 11. I love this passage. I'm going to read it again for us. But 9 through 11 of Joshua 2. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that your terror has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what he did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. You see, Rahab, like many in the city of Jericho, heard all that God had done for his people. And those acts of God... We're meant to give courage to the Israelites. We're meant to give courage to the followers of God to believe if God can do this and God can do that, he's going to be with us. But at the same time, these acts were not only meant to encourage and strengthen the faith of the Israelites. It was in the same way God reminding those that would stand against the nation of Israel that he is God. And it would remove their courage from them. 
Now, why would this need to happen? Why would God use the same acts to strengthen the faith of the Israelites, but to remove the courage of those outside of, of the nation of Israel, those outside the covenant? It's primarily this, to draw those who are outside the covenant into covenant relationship with him. This is what happens with Rahab, is it not? Because of what God had done and because of the works of God that gave the strength and courage to the Israelites, it caused those outside of the covenant to say, man, this God is amazing. He is truly Lord and King and I want to know him. I want to serve him. I want to honor him. And it draws them into covenant relationship with him. The Israelites obviously struggled to have strong faith after leaving Egypt. And it's amazing to me that Rahab, outside the relationship with God, outside the covenant with God, saw these things for what they were, but the children of God missed it. And we've been going through Exodus on Wednesday nights and just going verse by verse, passage through passage. And it's amazing to me, time and again, how God provides. He provides water. They don't have any food. We complain we got no food. He provides food. They come across a time where they have no water. We have no water. We're going to die. He provides water again. He does all these great works. And in the moment, we praise and we worship and we're so excited. But when hard times come and difficulties come into our lives, we completely forget the God that he is, and we forget what God, the God, what God has done, and we go, oh, you can't do that again. Oh, we're just going to, oh, what are we going to do? And it's amazing to me, as we see all throughout Scripture, those that were the closest to the covenant with God that should have understood what God was doing, missed it, but somebody on the outside looking in completely got it and understood, and I believe turned and made a decision to trust in the God of Israel. Rahab made a choice to trust in the word of these men and hide them from the guards. And in so doing, trusted in the character of their God. It seems obvious to note, but one that we must make a note of. She decided to trust the God of the Hebrews or the Israelites before she even met the spies. Before she ever had a conversation with them, God was working in her heart. And she made a decision to trust in their God before she ever met one of the spies. Because God was working in her heart. And this happens today, does it not? You ever, you ever find yourself at work and you're having a conversation with someone and you're trying to muster up that courage to share your faith? I don't know about you, but I can be intimidated sometimes to share my faith. What are they going to say? They're going to make fun of me. They're going to ask me a question about Abraham's third cousin. I don't know who that is. What do I do with that? We kind of get in our own heads and we psych ourselves out. But you ever find yourself getting ready to want to share your faith and you go up to that coworker after weeks of praying for strength and you open your mouth and you say, hey, I have a question for you. And they stop you and they say, wait, I got a question for you. You go to church, right? Well, yeah. So you know Jesus, this Jesus stuff? Yeah. What's the deal with that? Because, man, I have been feeling like I need something in my life and I don't know what it is, but maybe it's that. Do you know why that happens? Because long before you decided to say, Lord, I'm going to step out, God, by the working of his spirit, was working in their heart and their mind. And all of a sudden, when you finally agree with the spirit, you finally agree with God, and you say, God, I will say it. I will speak out. And you go to open your mouth. God's already been doing a work. And you sit back and you think, wow, that was amazing. Now, is that how it always happens? No. Sometimes God is working and that person is rejecting that working and you go to say something and they react with aggression or get defensive. Why? Not because you said something, but because they've already been feeling convicted by the spirit. John tells us that the spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness. He's already doing this work. And so what all we need to do is say, I just believe and I trust and I'll go and I'll share my faith. You see, she made a decision to trust God long before she met the spies. Something of interest that I wanted to point out when it talks about that she hid the men. 
She hid the men. It talks about this idea in verse 6. But she brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax. Now, I've always read that. I came to Christ a little bit later. I was 16 when I came to Christ. And I remember sitting in youth group and heard that. And I thought, stalks of flax. I have no idea what that is. What is a stalks of flax? And so I did a little research, just a little side note here. Basically, this is dried out produce. This is produce that would have been laid on the roof to be dried out. And they stack it about three to four feet high. So once they lay it all out and they dry it up and they stack it up in these little bunches. And it's three to four feet high. So obviously these spies, if you ever thought about that and you thought, trying to imagine this in your mind, because that's how I read scripture. They weren't just laying under like some stalks of corn, like holding the corn, like, she'll never see me. That's not what it was like, okay? Because I've always thought about that, like one, like a stalk of corn. Like, what's that going to do? I think he's under there. I don't know, but I think. So what's he talking about here? What's this grouping of vegetables or produce that would be three to four feet high, obviously enough to conceal them. And here we see that Rahab makes this decision to not only welcome them in, but to purposely hide them and to conceal their location. You see, Rahab had limited knowledge of God. Very limited knowledge of God. What did she know about God? The things that God had done. That's it, really. We don't know that she knew anything else about God other than that. But even based on limited knowledge of God and his plan, she had enough knowledge to decide to follow that God. She made a commitment, which is another way of saying she took a risk. And she placed a hope in the future in the men's words. She displayed faith and was rewarded for it. See, that's the beauty of our God. Simple faith in believing in who he is. And isn't that what God says faith is? That God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, who believe he is who he says he is. He is the God that he says he is. She heard, she believed, and she acted. How simple is the gospel? We hear the gospel. We believe the gospel. We act on the gospel. You can jot it down if you're taking notes. And you know me, I love when people take notes. And so if you want a copy of these notes or any of the Joshua notes, please let me know. I'd love to send these to you. You can just have my copies. But John chapter 4, isn't it exactly what we see in the woman at the well? She heard, she believed, and she acted. What did she do when she realized that Jesus was the Messiah? She went out into all the city, bad reputation and all, immoral reputation and all, and said, I don't really care what you think about me, but I got to tell you about this guy that just told me every single thing I've ever done. Is not this the Messiah? You know, the Bible says that men came and heard from Christ, and then more people came and responded to the, the message of the gospel because of the testimony of that woman who didn't let a an immoral past with mistakes and issues and all the things that happened to so many of us. We all have things in our past, if we're being really honest, that we wish we wouldn't have done. So many of us carry around regrets and guilt. And I want to encourage you, when you lay that at the feet of the cross and you pick up the grace of Christ, it's not that we forget those things that we've done. Paul says, I forget them, but I remember them in a sense. I forget them. They don't have power over me, but I remember them and I learn from them so that I won't fall into those sinful decisions again. So we hear, we believe, and we act on what we've heard. God is already using the nation of Israel to reach the lost world, which was and is his goal since Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That was the whole point of the Abrahamic covenant, that all of the creation of God would know his character, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, and have a relationship with him. 
So, who was Rahab? She was a prostitute who was aware of the power of God and made a decision to trust in that God. Quickly, as we try to wrap this up, I don't want to stop here, but we're going to finish out this message this morning. So quickly, we'll move to the second idea. So who was Rahab? Second question is, who did Rahab become? I'm going to give you some verses for time's sake. I won't be able to turn there for all of them, but I'm going to give you some verses. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, we read about Rahab. James chapter 2 and verse 25. James chapter 2 and verse 25. In both Hebrews and James, we read positive remarks of the faith of Rahab. That she was a woman of faith who trusted and believed, even with limited knowledge. Look at Joshua chapter 6. We will turn there. Joshua chapter 6. We're going to read just a couple of verses as we discover how her story kind of continues through. Now, again, we'll get into Joshua 6 more next week with the fall of Jericho. Spoiler alert, Jericho falls. Shocker, I know, but it's what happens. Joshua chapter 6, look at verse 23. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father, and her mother, and her brethren, and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred, and left them without the camp of Israel. Then it goes on to say, And they burnt the city with fire, and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive, and her father's household, and all that she had, And she dwelled in Israel even unto this day, meaning the day that this was recorded, because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Isn't it an amazing reality we see here that her faith was put into action and she was rewarded for it? That she followed through and then God, through the moving of through Joshua, saved them and, and brought them out of the city and then she dwelt in the nation of Israel. That idea of dwelling in the nation of Israel is not just meaning she lived with them. It means she became one of them. She took on the culture that they had. She took on the beliefs that they had. She lived as a follower of God is what it's saying. Now, the scriptures don't record this for us specifically, but church tradition and his, history of, of uh, the nation of Israel tells us that Rahab became a princess of Judah, a princess of Judah, meaning she married someone from the tribe of Judah. Jewish tradition tells us, while not stated directly in the Old Testament, that she married a prince of Judah and she becomes a woman of great importance. A woman of great importance. According to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, she is an ancestor to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. She is also then the great grandmother of David the king. Think about that for a moment. Because she was willing to surrender and trust and believe. God used her tremendously. That only would she be the great-grandmother of David, the greatest king that we can read of in Scripture. A man after God's own heart who, yes, sinned and fell, but repented and turned back. And God only records, after his repentance, only records that he was a man that served God. And she is an ancestor to the person of Jesus Christ. You see, only God... Only God can use someone that we would write off and cast away and set aside as there's no way they could be used to be an ancestor to the Messiah. 
Again, this is so powerful because not only during the earthly ministry of Christ do we see the reach of grace. Even in the family line leading to the Messiah, we see individuals that the religious world would have casted away. And yet by grace through repentance, they are vital to the plan of God. So who did Rahab become? She became a perfectly imperfect vessel for God's glory. She became a perfectly imperfect vessel for God's glory. What can we learn from the life of Rahab about our God? As well as about imperfect people in his plan. I believe we can learn that his character is if somebody is willing to put their faith in him, he will redeem them and use them for his glory, no matter their past or in Rahab's case, her present. Notice he used her also right away. There is no waiting period to demonstrate that faith. It's not we receive Christ and then we have to sit around on our hands and say, I hope like one day I'll get used. No, we just actively pursue him and he will begin to use us. When we realize that God uses unexpected people to do his will for his glory, it changes how we view others and how we view ourselves. We are all imperfect, which we hear said a lot in church. But we must believe that we are truly no better than anyone else. When we see others as equally messed up, there will be no judgment, only compassion and calls to repentance through grace, which we ourselves were called to. The same compassion and grace we want to receive from others, we extend to others. The story of Rahab and the spies demonstrates the powerful way God uses the unexpected to accomplish his will. We see countless examples of this in scripture of the imperfect, non-religious, the real, the genuine, the normal people that God has used and continues to use in amazing ways. So why? Why does God purposely choose to use imperfect people to do his will on planet earth? Because at the end of the day, we are not glorified. He is glorified. And we say, it is not me. I am imperfect. Again, does this mean we run headlong into sin? Of course not. We do not sin that grace may abound. God forbid, Romans 6. But when we are in Christ, we can be used to God to do great things for his glory and for his praise. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray and ask God to work in our hearts and minds. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for the truth that we find in your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who can use us exactly where we are. Lord, I'm so thankful that your love and your grace meets us right where we are, but I'm also so thankful that your love and grace will not leave us where we are. That when we receive you as our Lord and Savior, that you begin to work in us and conform us to the image of Christ. That when we repent of our sin, you begin to change our desires in our hearts. That no longer do we desire the things of the world. We desire the things of Christ. But Lord, we are in this flesh. And there are times where we stumble. We get our eyes off you. And Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone here that has made those decisions this week, if they are a follower of Christ, I pray that they would know that they have not lost their relationship with you. That sin will hinder that relationship, but in no way will you cast us away because you hold on to us. We are in your hand and your hand is in the Father's hand and no one can pluck you out of, no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. But I'm so thankful, Lord, that when we cry out to you, you redeem, you restore, and you lift us up. Thank you, Father, for using using imperfect people who cry out to you, who seek you, who surrender to you, 
who decide that you are not just our Savior, but you are a Lord. You are the King that we serve and submit to under your authority. And so, Father, we thank you for that grace that you extend. And I pray right now, Lord, if there's anyone in this room right now or watching online that feels unusable because of a past decision, and maybe it was even yesterday, that they would repent, turn from that sin, and trust in you. If they know you as Savior, that they would ask that you would restore that right thinking and renew their thinking. If they don't know Christ, that they would come to know you. But then they would decide to say, Lord, I'm going to submit to you and I want to be active. Don't let my past keep me victim any longer because I surrender it to you. Use it for your glory. And Father, thank you for this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we have a time of invitation? Invitation is a simple time for you to respond to what God is doing. Maybe you want to there in your seats or you want to come forward. Maybe you want to bend a knee. You want to say, Lord, thank you for using me as an imperfect person. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling unusable. Don't let anyone else, don't worry about anyone else between you and God. Come forward and say, God, I thank you for your grace that will use even someone like me and you see value in me and love me as I am. Thank you for that. Would I surrender to you? Would you come and bend a knee? Or-